Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, May 12th. Today's podcast focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV newsroom. I'm Caroline Ely. And I'm Emma Murphy. And here's this week's feature stories. Bridgerton is a popular Netflix series that follows characters during the Regency period of England. It made fans everywhere want to live like dukes and duchesses. And now they can by attending the Queen's Ball, a Bridgerton-themed event in New York City. WFEV's Christina Lulich attended the ball and spoke to Isis Arias from Netflix Live Experiences. If you've ever desired to live like a debutante, you may have been drawn to the Netflix series Bridgerton. The show is inspired by the book series written by Julia Quinn. Together, Netflix and the production company Shondaland brought it to life on screen. It's been well-received by fans, so much so that they want to actually be in the show. Bridgerton is an amazing story, and Shondaland has really created such a beautiful world. You want to be able to walk in the gardens and go to the Modiste and promenade. (laughs) So it really created an amazing opportunity for us to build a world around it. That was Isis Arias, the lead of marketing for Netflix Live Experiences. The Queen's Ball has been hosted in cities like Toronto, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. This spring, the ball made its way to the Big Apple, ahead of Bridgerton's season three release. It's the perfect city to host a ball. You know, we have seen fans show up in amazing gowns and dresses and outfits for the ball. I know New York is going to bring it with the fashion. At the ball, you'll see a range of outfits. From semi-formal to full-on ball gown attire, everyone can attend the ball how they see fit. We're real big Bridgerton fans. We're excited about season three. That was Miranda Johnson. She attended the Queen's Ball and loved being immersed in the Bridgerton experience. The live performance really draws you in, and you even get to dance like a debutante. It's so much fun if you are a fan, but you can absolutely join us at the ball even if you are not. You are attending a ball. There is a performance element that you get to watch, but you do actively get to interact and participate. From dancing lessons, to curtsying to the queen, to even being named Diamond of the Night, you really get to feel like you're living in the Regency period of the 1800s. Head to BridgertonExperience.com to see if the Queen's Ball is coming near you anytime soon. It's something fans and everyone can enjoy. I'm Christina Lulich, WFUV News. That was WFUV's Christina Lulich reporting on the Queen's Ball, a Bridgerton experience. Strike Accord is WFUV's public service campaign. Each quarter, we choose to highlight nonprofits in the New York City area that do work centered around a specific theme. This quarter, our focus is the heart of art. We take a look at organizations that spread kindness and hope in our community. WFUV's Isabel Danzis has more. My name is Claudia Fonadraber, and I am the executive director at CODA. So could you briefly describe what CODA does? CODA is a social practice residency for mid-career artists. We organize exhibitions, residencies, and arts education programs. What does mid-career artist mean to CODA? It means a person who has been um, doing work for a while, minimum 10 years. They're at least 30 years old. 
Uh, we don't have a very strict definition because there isn't one. Uh, but uh, an artist who has had several solo shows, um, maybe a museum exhibition as well. Okay. And why is helping out these types of artists important? The art world and the art market very often focus on emerging artists or established artists. And mid-career artists are very often overlooked and we provide support and love working with those artists to just help with their careers. In terms of your work, do you mostly focus on one type of art or are the artists that you help out and support, do they do a whole range of mediums? It is visual arts, all range of mediums. In the past, we have worked with photographers, sculptors, uh, artists who make installations, public art, digital art, video art, all sorts of um, media. So we're not limiting ourselves to, to one particular kind. The most important thing is that it is conceptual and it is socially engaged. What type of barriers does the art world have for these mid-career artists that they have to overcome? They are overlooked because uh, on one hand, the art world is kind of expecting for them to just keep doing the same thing while mid-career artists, from the conversations we keep having and the surveys uh, we have done in the past, um, they also yearn experimentation. They want to do new things and uh, they, they, seem, they feel secluded in, in their work. Um, so there, there just isn't enough support for the newness that is possible um, and that the, the artists you know, really want. Professional development is such a huge thing and uh, our professional development programs have been so successful. It's a um, big part of our residency program. Uh, to provide professional development and the artists decide how they want to spend their professional development credit depending on what they need at this moment in their career. Okay, um, so then what type of ways do you specifically support these artists? Is it mostly financial or is it connecting them with other artists or giving them space to show off their work? What kind of, what does that look like? So through our residencies, we provide a stipend, $1,000 at the moment. Um, we provide a professional development credit of $200. Um, and that can be used for anything from grant writing, legal advice, social media strategy, or linking them up with other arts professionals and artists who could be of help. There is also a monthly consultancy that we offer with our team um, and of course uh, exhibition opportunities. And could you just elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by socially engaged art? It means art that deals with any particular topics that are of interest to, to the artist um, that focus on uh, communities very often underserved and overlooked. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzis speaking to Claudia Ofwana Drabert about CODA and their work with mid-career artists. It's been almost a year since Roe v. Wade was overturned. During that time, we've heard from women about how the landmark decision has impacted them. WFUV's Megan Oftermat has a different kind of story. 
one from the history books, about what it was like for women long before Roe was implemented. Family secrets can stay hidden forever. These secrets are the empty spaces and scrapbooks where photos were ripped out and torn up. Some secrets go to the grave. Others surface suddenly and without warning. And just like that, they aren't secrets anymore. I needed to tell the story. You need to hear the story. That's my mom's friend, Linda Richards. A few years back, Linda told my mom a story, and my mom told me. I've been thinking about Linda's story a lot lately. I am the only one out of all the grandchildren that my grandmother had that she told this story to. I have housed this story in my heart from the time I met with her way back in 1964. That year, Linda was living in Santa Monica when her grandmother Mary came to visit her. Mary was in her early 70s at the time. Linda and her grandmother were really close, and she thought she knew everything there was to know about her. Until her grandmother told her something, she had never told anyone. And she says to me, Linchka, she says, I have something to tell you. I did abortions with wooden spoons. I learned how to, by watching it done, and then tried with the abortionist watching me. And the next part is extremely important. I never took any money. I have never told anyone, not even your mother, what I did. To understand why Linda's grandmother, Mary, was part of an underground abortion network, we have to go back in time to the 30s in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. 1929, the financial house of cards collapses and the overinflated stock market plunges into a great depression. This Midwestern neighborhood was made up of mostly poor, working-class European immigrants from Poland, Germany, Croatia, Italy, and Slovenia. Linda's grandmother, Mary, had immigrated to the United States from present-day Slovenia in 1912. Nearly everyone in the community worked in factories, and when the Depression descended on Cleveland, they all lost their jobs. A financial panic gripped the world. People were desperate. Linda's grandparents, Mary and Frank, owned a grocery store, their neighbors were so poor, they couldn't pay for their groceries. Linda's grandfather, Frank, would let them leave without paying, adding their food to tabs he knew would never be covered. So the women who came to the grocery store, some of them were so poor that they just couldn't afford to feed another mouth. The other group of women were women who had children and were exhausted. Their bodies they knew could not bear another child. And my grandmother heard their stories and she felt a great deal of compassion for them. If they needed an abortion, they'd let my grandmother know they were suffering. Sharing this story means acknowledging why these abortions were necessary. 
Back then, women were expected to have children. Even if the number of children in their home exceeded their financial bandwidth, preventing pregnancy wasn't always an option. There was like no way to practice any birth control. The only thing you could do is abstain. But abstinence wasn't always an option either. So Linda's grandmother, Mary, decided to do something to help these women. She gave one woman an abortion, then another, and another. And so, like in a game of telephone, the women whispered, and by word of mouth, they shared the news about Mary's service. Mary never told anyone what she did, and she waited 30 years to tell her granddaughter, Linda. When I think back to my whole family and what they're like, I was certainly the perfect person for my grandmother to tell the story. Linda was the lone progressive outlier in a traditionally conservative family. She didn't associate abortion with shame or sin. I knew I couldn't tell my family because there's a Catholic priest in the family, one of the grandchildren. For years, Linda was afraid that if she spilled her grandmother's secret, it would tarnish the family's memory of her. But Linda doesn't want the story to end with her. I've just turned 80. You know, there's not a lot of time. And so here you come with this opportunity to share this story with the universe. And Linda hasn't just shared her grandmother's story. She's also dedicated her energy to helping women receive abortion care today. She started volunteering at an abortion clinic in Cleveland called Preterm. And in 2005, she found a way to honor her grandmother's work. And I said, I'm going to send you a check for $2,000. And I'd like my grandmother, Mary Vidmar, to be honored because she did abortions. And I think they were done during the Depression in the 30s. Preterm, which is a short drive from where I grew up, is one of six full-service abortion clinics left in the state of Ohio. Each year, the number of clinics providing abortion services in the state drops. In 2014, Ohio had 17 facilities. In 2017, that number dropped to 14. Today, there are only nine facilities that offer abortion services. The state has been given new freedom to peel back access following the reversal of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that previously provided federal protection to the right to an abortion in the United States. A sweeping, deeply consequential decision from the nation's highest court ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade. The court overturned nearly 50 years of abortion precedents in a ruling that was a first. Never before has the court Today, granted... The court answer that question again, this time on a 5-4 to four vote, taking away what was regarded as a fundamental... In right. June of last year, after Roe was repealed, Ohio banned abortion after around six weeks of pregnancy. And even though the law is tied up in the courts and hasn't gone into effect, Every time a new piece of legislation is pushed forward in my home state of Ohio, whether it's banning abortion earlier and earlier, or forcing doctors to cremate fetal tissue, or pushing non-medically necessary ultrasounds on women seeking abortions, 
I think about Linda's grandmother. I don't know what she'd be like with the freedom that she would have today in our world. She certainly had the makings for an activist. I think about how much her grandmother Mary risked to provide reproductive care to women who didn't have access. And I think about how little has changed in nearly 100 years. Access is still hard to come by. Over 90% of counties in Ohio don't have facilities that offer abortion. An entire culture war was born out of the battle over abortion. Mary may not be here, but her pulse is the steady undercurrent that pushes women to protect each other, to help each other, and to fight for each other. All the women who do all the work that they're doing today with a cause such as this are supported by women like my grandmother from the past. Linda says that her grandmother would be proud that her story is being told, and, given the circumstances, that her story needs to be told. Her sense of urgency to share the story now is just as strong as her grandmother's was back in 1964. She must have felt she's growing older. Somebody needs to know, and let me use this word, the contribution that I've made to the world. And 60 years later, we finally know. With WFUV News, I'm Megan Oftermat. That was WFUV's Megan Oftermat sharing Linda Richards' story about how her grandmother lived in a world without access to abortion. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Here at WFEV News, we're celebrating by sharing three different stories about how heritage is honored here in New York City. For the first installment, WFUV's Maya Sargent sat down with Ajalyn Francisco and learned about how she holds on to memories of home through the food she shares with her customers. Ajalyn Francisco is warm, charismatic, and incredibly funny. She's also the owner of the Filipino restaurant Cabecera in the Lower East Side. Ajlin was born in San Isidro in the Philippines. She's a member of the Tagalog community, which is just one of the 150 minority groups in the Philippines. Her life in the Philippines was vastly different from the hustle and bustle of New York City. She grew up on a farm, and her community didn't actually receive electricity until 2000. After living in Tokyo, Japan for nearly a decade, Ajlin made her way to New York City. I wasn't sure. I'm okay in Asia, I'm okay <laughs> in Japan. It was a culture shock for me. <laughs> Ajlin says it took a while to adapt to city life. She credits finally feeling settled here to two things. Her partner, Joey, who she met in 2013. When you have a local showing you around, uh, you'll see the other side of the city. And her cafe and restaurant, Cabecera. Ajlin opened the first location in 2017. She wanted to preserve her culture and share her favorite foods. And she also hated having to travel to Queens to find good Filipino food. 
And despite there being very few Filipino restaurants in Manhattan, Ojnan says the city has been very accepting of her culture. Lower East Side is a very friendly neighborhood. Mm. They welcome, um, I think, every immigrant. So uh, we feel very welcome. Ojlin loves introducing people to her favorite foods and traditions. A lot of the neighborhoods are not familiar about our culture, about the mm. Filipino food, Filipino desserts. They show some support. They were like, oh, okay, I want to try this one, I want to try this. One of the most popular desserts people stop in for is the biko. It's a purple glutinous rice, color purple. And it's very attractive, like a lot of the people love the color and it we roll it with a crispy coconut. So you get this chew, chewiness and crunchiness on it. And the bibinka. Uh, so it's a rice flour. Uh -huh. In the Philippines, uh, we cook it on the top of the charcoal, but we don't have a charcoal here. So we bake it, but that's same texture and it's topped with salted egg. So it's a savory, it's not a sweet, but it's more like texture of the sponge cake and has a crispy in it. For a couple of years, Cabecera only sold desserts and coffee, but now they offer a limited menu featuring seasonal produce. So we do have the karikare. It's a meat with peanut sauce and shrimp paste. The whole menu has been shaped by Ojlin's memories of home. I have a couple of chefs that I, I work with them in terms of uh, how we can efficiently preserve and serve. But yeah, most of the thinking, creativity, I get the inspiration to the food that I remember. Ojlin cares deeply about preserving her Filipino heritage and sharing it with the city of New York. And she has some big dreams. I wanted to see the cabecera as much as you see McDonald's everywhere. <laughs> maybe, okay, maybe not cabecera, but Filipino food. On her quest to make Filipino food accessible for all New Yorkers, she's also the co-founder of the Philippines Fest, a group of small Filipino-owned businesses that hold a street fair once a month. 30 small Filipino-owned businesses, food to merchandise to art, and we're going to have like a performer, a little games, and all like Philippines flag on the streets. The next fair will be held on May 21st in Brooklyn. Ojlin says this community has been one of the reasons why she finally feels at home in New York. Yeah, I have, I, I would say I now find myself here. <laughs> and even though some days she does feel homesick, Cabasera gives her an opportunity to connect New Yorkers with Filipino food, which helps her stay tethered to her own culture. Whatever my contribution to create awareness of the Filipino culture, Filipino food, it serves purpose and at least I am one of the many that trying to help give an awareness about our food, our culture. You can find Cabasera on Allen Street in the East Village or on Canal Street in Lower Manhattan. With WFUV News, I'm Maya Sargent. That was WFUV's Maya Sargent talking to Ojalyn Francisco from Cabecera about how she honors her Filipino heritage every day through her love of food. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from WFUV's newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews, just like the ones you heard, exclusively from FUV. 
You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Emma Murphy. And I'm Caroline Ely.